0: Jesus says, at really what is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I'll explain that in a minute, do not think anything I'm about to say is designed to put down or abolish the law or the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament, what Jews call the Tanakh. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. It's partial, preliminary, pointing to Christ, but it is perfect in its position. Whoever then is, annuls one of the least of these commandments as actually in the Old Testament Scripture, as opposed to the more picky requirements of the Pharisees, and teaches others to do the same, and in fact they basically denied the heart of the law by emphasizing the letter, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, and here's the theological purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religiously righteous people in all of world history, I'm convinced, were Jewish scribes and Pharisees in the first century, and that kind of human righteousness is not going to get you in to the kingdom of heaven. Now, we come to letter M in our Life of Christ A through Z system, and, uh, Connor, I'm going to put you to work here. This is letter M. So I'm going to talk about M occasionally. And when we when we do that, I want you to stand up and kind of hold that letter up. So they're going to remember what letter we're on. And M stands for Marvelous Messages. And that works in tandem with N, Nature Neutralized, because during the great Galilean ministry, Jesus is getting the word out as widely as possible to the Jewish nations who have the Jewish nation that has the Old Testament Scripture Messiah's on the ground, and he's going to present the kingdom of God and present himself as the issue, issue issuer of eternal life, and validate his claims by doing incredible miracles. So we're going to enter into a large phase of the ministry, and much of what he said is in whole or in part what you read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus did not teach this information one time. This is way too good. This was... For lack of a better term, this is Jesus' stump speech for the Galilean ministry, okay? So these are themes that he will repeat. Now, you may notice our call to worship today was chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And we will look at those verses in two weeks, Lord willing. Uh, Next week, James will speak from Mark 6. I'm going to be in Beaumont taking part in my sister's wedding. But Lord willing, on the 23rd, two weeks from today, we'll... Uh, deal with what the Lord says in that call to worship passage, verses 13 through 16, as we actually look at chapter six and show you how those concepts and those two sections fit together. Uh, but today we want to look at, and we're going to spend three weeks surveying the Sermon on the Mount. Lord willing, we're going to look at the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said. I mean, you know, Phil, if this was a trick question. Who said the most unreligious thing anyone's ever said? You might say Nietzsche, right? Or Stalin, or uh, who else? Pol Pot, somebody, Saddam Hussein. Jesus Christ said the most unreligious thing anyone's ever said. I say to you, unless your righteousness is better than the best religious righteousness, lowercase r, that human beings can crank out you're not going to go to heaven so we're going to look at the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said today in verses 17 through 20 but first let's uh pray that we'll be teachable to god's word that this will be about the teaching and not the teacher right the message and not the mess behind the pulpit and also as is our custom and we're happy to do it let's pray for our military our peace officers and our firefighters and uh Wolf, would you uh, lead us in opening prayer in that direction, Wolfgang? Amen. We like to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, right, Anthony, before we dive into the text. So this is an oldie but a goldie, but I, I really like this one myself. It doesn't guarantee you're going to like it. But, uh, you know, as as Goliath is standing in the field of battle seeing this young shepherd, Jewish shepherd come out, a lot of things crossed his mind. I mean, like hundreds of things crossed his mind. But I'm not going to waste your valuable time going through all, all of them. Uh, but what I have done is I spent much of my valuable time coming up with the top seven things that crossed Goliath's mind just before David loaded his slingshot. Okay, Abby? Ready? Number seven. Donald Trump would have a better chance against Hillary Clinton than this punk has against me. He thought that. Not a lot not real funny, you know, but uh the Philistine powerhouse, that'd be Goliath versus the Semitic shrimp. My agent will never be able to sell this to HBO. That's another thing that was going through his mind. Is this working, David? Turn up the microphone. It's funny, but for a shepherd, this kid doesn't sweat much. I made these up all by myself, by the way. After I put this midget in his place, I'm going to Disney World. I wonder why he's running toward me and not away from me. It's sad, but this whole thing will take about three seconds, and then nobody will even remember it ever happened. And here we are 3,000 years later talking about it. Isn't that interesting? And the final thing going through Goliath's mind, A kid, put that rock down before someone gets hurt. Okay, same song, second verse. Uh, we're in the process, thanks to the goodness of Wendy Powers' heart, of updating our church directory and trying to get as much information about who you people are as is legal under U.S. federal law. And uh, <laughs> uh, I want—if you didn't get a chance to do this last week—look at this information, find yourself. If we left you off, write your name down. I don't think we left too many people off. If you need to add something or correct the phone number or the address is wrong, please correct it. But even if you don't correct anything, if you look at it, circle it so we know you looked at it, okay? Now, last week, we started here. This week, so that everybody will feel treated fairly, we're going to start on this this, uh, this part of the uh, auditorium. All the way back, back there, through the middle, over there, back there. Danny, you're in charge of this after they're done, okay? Because it's going to end up with you. Okay, so we're going to multitask again today. I think you can do that. We're going through the life of Christ A through Z. What letter are we looking at? Stand up, Connor. Hold it up. Hold it up proudly above your head. Smile. Hold the top of it, not the bottom of it. it... Yeah, there we go. Now turn, turn to your left. Everybody see that? Okay. Letter M, which stands for Marvelous Messages, and he would have preached hundreds of messages, but the essence of what he's saying, and the whole other part, is basically the Sermon on the Mount. So these are real events, real people, uh, real places, and let's walk through the life of Christ A through Z as review. A stands for um, angels announce the supernormal, they're too old to have children, uh, conception of John the Baptist, and he wasn't a G- Baptist, was he? He was a Jew. Whoop, don't do that. How about technical difficulties. Yeah, okay. And that's A prime. Uh, a two prime would be angelic announcements to Mary and months later to Joseph about the supernatural class A miracle virgin conception of Jesus that happened in Nazareth. That's A. B stands for birth in Bethlehem. C stands for carpentry career. Tecton means a skilled worker in wood or stone. That's what Jesus did from age 12 to about 30, Luke says. Only three years preaching. Well, I wouldn't have organized his ministry like that. But God is always perfect, and he does things differently than we might think he would do. The ministry proper starts with D and E. D stands for dove descends at the baptism of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus is declared there by the voice of God the Father. And then immediately Jesus goes one-on-one with our chief spiritual foe, Lucifer is a real being. He's not imaginary, but he can only be one place at one time. He's super intelligent, super malicious. And at that point in time, he was in a Judean wilderness interacting with Jesus. And in his interaction with the great spiritual foe, the last Adam, was not just declared righteous, he demonstrated his righteousness. So he is fully qualified to be the sin bearer because he has none. F, right after Jesus interacts with Lucifer, the temptations... He goes back to where John the Baptist is preaching. And John says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On two separate days, some of his disciples who were looking for the Messiah, Jesus, but didn't know who he was, start to follow him. F stands for first followers. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel were the first five followers. G stands for great guests at the wedding feast. Jesus turns water into wine to keep the wedding reception going. That's his first miracle. H. First Passover in his ministries, thirty AD, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover. And H stands for harsh house cleaning. After two thousand years of organized prophecies to get the Jewish nation for the Messiah. The religious system is corrupt. The folks are in it for the money. There are a lot of sincere worshipers there looking for the Messiah. You always have that. You can have corrupt uh, bureaucracies and very well-meaning people, including in religious bureaucracies, including in some of the denominations that have gone so far left they don't believe anything worth believing. You're still going to have sincere people in the pews quite often. But harsh housecleaning, Jesus says, I do not accept the status quo. It's, it's not what God wants. And he cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, letter I, while he's in Jerusalem, he has an incredible interview with the most famous Jewish teacher of his day. His name is Nicodemus. He's uh, trying to earn his way by being a good Jew to heaven, uh, but he has his doubts he's good enough. And Jesus says, hey, you got to be born again. It's not about keeping rules. It's about entering into a relationship with me through faith. Harsh house cleaning. No one's so good they don't need salvation through faith in Christ. I stand, or J stands for jive talking at Jacob's well. We go from one person to the polar opposite kind of person a very irreligious immoral person and Jesus offers the woman at the well eternal life living water if she'll ask him for it in faith so no one is so bad they can't have eternal life through faith in Christ that's letter j k kin kick out the ministry's in full swing uh there's a big buzz about Jesus he goes back to his hometown where he'd been a tecton for 18 years and he reads the as the lay uh, honored layperson there. He's asked to read the scripture. The bookmark in the scroll just happens to be Isaiah 61. And it reads something like this in English. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And Jesus would have given that kind of inflection to it. And then he sits down, not back in the pulpit, not back in the pews, but on a high stool to explain what the text mean, means. And Jesus says, today This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the person Isaiah is talking about. And, of course, the city uh, rejoiced and uh, bowed down and worshipped him, didn't they? The vast majority of them turned on him. How dare he say he's the Messiah? And actually tried to kill him, but he miraculously escaped that attempt. L stands for location lateral. Rather than basing his ministry in his hometown, like you might think, he bumps into fishermen a lot because Nazareth doesn't want him, so he bases his ministry not outside his carpenter shop, but on the seashore at a fishing village. And now today and do that again if you want me to. We start the Great Galilee ministry in earnest with M what letter was it again? Yeah, that letter right there, which means which talks about marvelous messages where Jesus is preaching as widely as possible, trying to draw large crowds. That's gonna change. That's going to change because if we analyze the, the ministry of Christ, it kind of goes up as far as market share and crowds up until the point where the Jewish religious leaders are forced to take a formal opinion on him, to, a position on him, I should say, which is, oh, opposition offered. Uh, they're not like Richard Dawkins today can just say that the disciples made this stuff up or they're so stupid they actually thought Jesus did miracles, including rise from the dead. So they're pretty gullible, right, uh, according to him. The actual opponents on the spot couldn't deny his miracles. They had to impugn the source, so they said, hey, of course he does miracles. It's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, Wizard of Oz kind of thing. Yeah, he does miracles, but he does them in satanic power. He's not the Messiah. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. So once that becomes the official position of the corrupt Jewish leaders, I'm not saying all Jews are corrupt. I'm saying the Jewish leaders of institutional Judaism, first century were. Uh, then suddenly his strategies changes. He still does some miracles, and he still attracts some crowds, but the crowds start thinning. Cause I think the average Jewish person is too smart to believe Jesus at the time, to believe he was satanically possessed, but I think they're thinking, well, he can't be the Messiah, or our leaders wouldn't have missed it that badly. He must just be another you know, prophet. And so the crowd's thin, and Jesus' purpose, which currently in M, is let's get the word out to the nation Israel far and wide, is circling the wagons to prepare the disciples for what? Because once the Jewish leaders say he's a satanic uh, empowered false prophet, what is the penalty under the Old Testament law for false prophets? It's capital punishment after due process. So that's their position. Now it's just a matter of them getting more um, evidence to prove it. The more miracles he does, the more evidence they've got against him because they're saying all his miracles are satanic so this, humanly speaking, becomes a foregone conclusion, and he changes his his tone of ministry. It's not so much let's get out to the crowds as let's prepare the, the 11 for uh, the aftermath of the crucifixion. So we're kind of in that area in the life of Christ based on that uh, kind of schematic, right? Now, we're going to say this is a message on the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said, and, you know, I like acronyms, and since I came up with this one all by myself, I get to decide how it's pronounced. Now, my wife is an expert on all things uh, phonics, so she thinks she is, So, uh, <laughs> and she's also an excellent speller, but uh, the way we're going to pronounce this is t mu That's t mu okay? I'm going to say it, you're going to repeat after me. The most... Religious, irreligious thing, unreligious thing I mean, The most unreligious thing anyone's ever said is represented by the acronym "T mu We could do that again, but we won't. Um, sermon at, of the Mount on the mountain at a glance. Um, we've got a prologue, we've got an epilogue, then we've got a purpose statement, theological purpose statement the main heart of the proclamation, and then a practical purpose statement. I want you to notice something a lot of people don't seem to notice, even people with big ministries. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds we're in the phase of the ministry, he wants to present himself to the crowds. The bigger the better. He went up on the mountain. We'll go on the slopes of that mountain in May next year, Lord willing. And after he sat down, which is the teaching position, not the resting position, his disciples came to him his disciples are right behind him sherry and from that point through verse 16 he's talking to disciples he's talking to believers unbelievers are not the light of the world unbelievers are not the salt uh, uh, spiritual salt they're not he's talking to believers during what I'm calling the prologue and so really the the statement in verse 17 through 20 is really the beginning of the sermon in earnest because This is the perfect pre-evangelistic presentation to people who are being told, if you're good enough Jews, you can earn your way into heaven. That's what they're being told. That's what they believe. That's what they're dedicated to, at least theoretically. And he's going to blow that out of the water. This is also great discipleship training for people who have realized their righteousness is not based on how good they are, but their relationship with Christ through faith. And now they're supposed to be spiritually bright and spiritually salty in a good sense. So just be aware of that as you read this uh, message that Jesus teaches. And let's pray we hear him speak to us through this as we look at this purpose statement, the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said. If you want to turn that bland analytical outline, and we're looking at that passage today, let's make it practical. The prologue is telling believers, even if they live in Kansas, to you are salt and light, be salty and bright. That's what he's saying to them, okay? And then he says, human beings need a righteousness human beings can't produce, no matter how religious or moral they are. Then he says, perfect righteousness is real, not just ritual and religious activity, although there's nothing wrong with rituals and religious activity, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. And then, righteous people tend to treat others with respect, and finally, religious Activity can't give you the righteousness you need to go to heaven. So we're going to look at the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said, and it was said by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Four verses break down into two parts. First, the context for Timu Tehes, and then we're going to see the content in verse 20. Look at verse 17. We're going to look at the context for this. Amazing statement in verse 20. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish law and a prophets." This is where he, I think, is probably standing up so he can address the crowd. Now, there are several natural amphitheaters in that area where you could address thousands of people without one of these microphones. So he's looking at probably thousands of people, and this is the first thing they're hearing. He's been sitting down giving discipleship truth to the disciples up to this point. Now he says, Hey, everybody, loud and clear. Uh, don't think any of him about to say is a, a dig or a uh, criticism of the Old Testament, the Law, and the Prophets. Uh, I, I, in fact, am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Well, those are fighting words, aren't they? Or could have been. He's basically saying nothing he's about to say is going to reject any of the Old Testament scriptures. So this is a, this is an upfront clarification, and it's necessary because the first time you hear this, and they're hearing it for the first time. A lot of the stuff he says here, Natalie, sounds like he's putting the Old Testament down, but he's not. Let me show you some examples. Look at five twenty one. You have heard that the ancients were told, back in Exodus and Deuteronomy, back in Moses' day, you shall not commit murder. He's quoting you know the Ten Commandments there. In order to commits murder shall be liable to the court, and after due process, capital punishment for murderers. But I say to you, you've heard what the Old Testament says and what he means is, and you know how the Pharisees woodenly interpret that, as long as you don't do a physical act of murder. And I can tell you, I've never physically murdered anybody. Ain't I great? Aren't I special? Right? I've never physically murdered anybody. Uh, on the softball field, there are a few Baptist and Catholic people I wanted to do baldy harm to, Knights of Columbus. You know, for years we had a church softball uh uh, team, and we really thought it was important at the time, and I still think it's really important, uh, but uh, uh, way back in the rearview mirror, Dale was one of our best players. I was kind of the pitcher because somebody else wanted to pitch. Tommy had a rifle arm over there, but some days he would kind of clear out every everybody behind first base because he's playing shortstop, and some days he couldn't quite get the pitches down, or his throws down, so he'd clear out the stands over there, but uh, Depp Cox Busses hard, you know, Deb Kosh was our, Homer's dad was one of our biggest fans. And, uh, um, you know, we eventually won the championship a couple of times, but leading up to that it took us a while. And the Knights of Columbus were typically one of the best teams, only because they had a bunch of his, Hispanic players. And that's not a stereotype, but just Hispanic players tend to be good baseball players. It's just not a stereotype. It's just a, it's a fact, you know, rooted in scripture somewhere, but I can't think of the verse. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, they we'd play everybody twice in that season. and you know, a lot of times we split. I think one year we swept it, but usually they would beat us at least once, usually twice. And every time we'd play them and they'd beat us, he would he would walk up to me and say, because they were called the Knights of Columbus. We had you know uh, Bethel Assembly of God, uh, First Baptist, Emmanuel Baptist, uh, all the churches. This is a church league, but they called themselves the Knights of Columbus, which is a which technically isn't a church, but it's related to Catholic Church, right? But Depp would always come up to me after we lost and he'd say. That's not a, they're not a church, they're a fraternal organization. In other words, they shouldn't even, get them out of the league. We can't beat them, so why should we play them, you know? I always thought that was great, man. But, uh, yeah, so uh, let's keep going here. Look at 527. Jesus is saying, don't think I'm saying anything bad about the Old Testament. I'm talking about the Pharisees misapplying it and saying it's just physical murder you got to worry about. I say to you that if you hate people, you're doing character assassination, gossip, slander, or you just hold grudges and you're implacable, that's the same thing. That's really the intent of that commandment. Not just to keep people from committing acts of physical murder, even though you're not supposed to do that. That's on the don't list. But it's holding a grudge, being implacable. You always keep the bridge open on your side. If you can't be gracious to folks, I mean, think about how much gracious, how gracious Christ has been with you. You gotta keep those, and you know, over the years I've seen people that I thought just hated me, could not possibly relate to me at all, become dear friends. You know, it happens. You know, it's a great thing. Uh, but you don't close your side of the bridge. Look at verse 27. You have heard it was said you should not commit adultery. That's straight from Exodus. That's straight from Deuteronomy. That's straight from the Old Testament. Uh, but I say to you, it almost sounds like he's saying maybe that's okay. It's not just physical acts of adultery. That's what the Pharisees prided themselves about. They didn't physically uh, run around their wives. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust, I think there's a difference between appreciating beauty and appropriating somebody else's body so I don't think you have to be this androgynous freak that doesn't notice pretty girls, you know. But uh, I think he's talking about the real meaning, the real intent. Let me tell you how the Pharisees limit this and distort it. I'm saying to you, you're not perfectly righteous because even if you haven't physically, normal men have done this a time or two or multiple times. It's just kind of the way we tend to be wired, which isn't an excuse, but as an explanation. Verse 31, chapter 5. It was said in Deuteronomy 24, whoever sends his wife away, just fill out the paperwork and you're good. Um, Jewish men, based on the rabbinical understanding uh, of the day, could divorce their wife for any reason, including burning the food at a, at a meal. That, that was specifically in the Targum. Uh, but Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces except for unchastity, that's the word pornea, lines up with the Deuteronomy 24 Erwit debar, which is a general term for gross moral impurity. Moikea is the word adultery. That's a more specific word. But I think there's a lot of things that can cause somebody to morally uh, blow up a marriage. And this obviously doesn't mean one time and a person is totally repentant and they want to make it right and it's horrible it happened, but they want to fix it. This is, I think, deliberate. Uh, I think of physical abuse. Uh, you know, we, we talk about... Uh, uh, abusive husbands, but 15% of all domestic violence is done by the wife on the husband. It, it happens both ways, but I would think of a abusive husband you who know, gets high or drunk and wails on his wife and his kids, and uh, of course he's going to be so sad about it and apologize, but it's going to happen again and again. You get in this cycle, and you in this cycle that doesn't stop. you got to do something uh, drastic, including just like one person can total a car, one person can total a marriage, but it's not just about you burn the toast and there's a cuter girl down the street so I'm going to fill out the paperwork right. That's what he's saying there. Verse 33. You've heard that the ancients were told. Verse 33 of chapter 5. Uh, you shall not make false vows. You shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. That's in Leviticus. Uh, and the Pharisees had these formal, uh, formulaic, for, uh, formal formulaic sayings when they were making promises to one another. And sometimes it's like crossing your fingers behind your back when we grew up. If you told somebody something... I'll see you tomorrow. Well, I'll give you that $10 that tomorrow I owe you. If you had your fingers crossed behind your back, you didn't have to do it. They don't do that anymore. But Jesus says, look, the point of that command wasn't just that you use certain kinds of oaths that are more or less binding. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, do what you say what you mean and mean what you say kind of thing, right? Verse 38, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which actually restricted criminal punishment in the ancient Near East, uh, depending on how poor you were or how disenfranchised, any minor offense could be capital crime. The Old Testament law limited to the extent, after due process, of what could be enacted on an offender based on the level and the violence level of the actual crime, and that was uh, intended not just the heart of it wasn't just for um, criminal offenses. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. This isn't talking about somebody who's trying to rape your wife. This is talking about somebody who's just rude, crude, nasty, and not very friendly. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, which was not an assault, but was a personal insult. That's the way they operated in that day. Turn the other cheek. Don't give up on a person just because they're rude, crude, nasty one time. If anyone wants to sue you... Uh, what I like is he says, if anybody forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The Romans who occupied the region had a law that forced Jewish civilian men to carry the Roman soldiers' pack for one mile. That was the law. And Jesus is saying, hey, if a Roman soldier says, I impress you to carry my pack, and you're under obligation under the Roman law, which you're supposed to submit to, to carry it one mile, he says, carry, carry it too. Be twice as gracious as you should be. He doesn't say carry it all the way to Rome and give up your family and your obligations. He did not say that there are boundaries there. But my point is, verse 17, don't think when I'm telling you what the Old Testament law really means, I'm digging up the Old Testament law. I'm telling you the way the Pharisees have designed this woodenly and just externally as a ladder where they think they can climb to heaven and they're trying to convince you that it ain't going to work. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass in the law until it's all accomplished. The Old Testament scriptures are propositional truth given by the living God. They're gnomic in their purpose. Uh, many of you have seen this before, but you know the Bible's a big book, only has two parts, though. First part of the Bible is called the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, the Jews call it, the law and the writings and the prophets. The second part of the Bible is called what? New Testament, right? Old Testament's written before Christ; it's partial, preliminary, pointing to the coming of the Lamb of God. The New Testament's written by eyewitnesses, like Luke, uh, writing during the generation of the immediate aftermath of the death, resurrection of Christ. One major premise in the Old Testament: what is it, Anthony? What's the premise of the Old Testament? Use the visual aid if you need to. Yeah, and every, have you listen? None of the so-called Old Testament heroes would be people you'd want to teach Sunday school here. Have you read about Judah? Read about Abraham? Read about David? Solomon? These people are slimy. I'm not kidding you, man. They all sin. They all die. What's the major promise of the Old Testament? God's going to send a lamb who's ultimately going to be a lion, right? What's the premise of the New Testament? Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And what's the major promise? The big promise is... Jesus coming back, and He's going to end history on God's terms. We're not in the best of all possible worlds. All we need is one less abortion, um, one less pornographic movie, one less drug deal. You got a better universe. This is the best universe possible with, uh, I think, morally viable creatures, including angels and, and humans. But it's not the best of all possible worlds. We're going to get to the best of all possible worlds: no cancer, no child molesters, no wars, no need for police or fire, kind of thing. So, you know. You superimpose kind of the big plan on this. Uh, prior to Christ coming and fulfilling and ending the operation of the Old Testament law, you know, the Old Testament law was binding on the Old Testament Jews, but it had to be understood correctly, and that's what he's doing here in this sermon, correctly interpreting it so you can get to the point. But on this side of the cross, we can eat. We don't have to eat kosher. You can eat kosher. It's a healthy way to eat. But yesterday, I was celebrating Brittany and and Matthew. We had some of the most delicious shrimp. If you didn't come, you blew it, man. You missed the shrimp. It was awesome. But under the Old Testament law, you can't eat shrimp, right? But what did God have to do for Peter to convince him in Acts 10, it's okay to eat shrimp? He had to lower all kinds of non-kosher food on a blanket and saying, what I've cleansed, don't call unclean anymore, right? So that's what we're doing here. Jesus is just saying, look, it's all good. Uh, look at verse 19. But the Old Testament law isn't about the, the letter, the externals. It's about an internal heart that, of course, doesn't commit acts of murder or physical acts of adultery because of the, the direction of the heart. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, which is what the Pharisees were doing. They hijacked biblical Judaism to come up with institutional Judaism. Uh, shall be called least in the kingdom, but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom. Wow. Uh, Jesus was really big on the scriptures. He makes a big deal about the wording, the specific wording in Matthew twenty-two forty-one 41 through 46. Uh, Jesus makes a big deal about the difference between a Hebrew word Yahweh and a Hebrew word Adonai in making an argument that he, in fact, is uh, God in the flesh. In John 8, he says true discipleship involves in abiding in his word. His word is the scripture. And look at Luke 24. I love this one. Look look at Luke 24, verse 26. There are 24 chapters in Luke. So when you get to chapter 24, you're probably talking about the resurrection, right? Because that's the way the story ends. It doesn't really end, but that's where the Gospels end, right? The resurrection and the ascension. But you know this story. Uh, the day of the resurrection, probably early afternoon, Jesus... Uh, bumps into two guys who are walking from Jerusalem to a city about seven or nine miles away, Emmaus, and they're not quite sure why God let the Messiah be crucified. They haven't heard about the resurrection. But look at verse 26. Uh, he's interacting with them, and they say, Haven't you heard that Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah, he's been crucified, and, and now the disciples said the body's gone, we don't know where it is. Um, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it empty, uh, but they didn't see him. And he says, let's go to verse 25, actually. Jesus says, Oh, foolish man and slow of heart to believe all that's written in the prophets. Haven't you read Isaiah 53? Was it not necessary for the Lamb of God to suffer these things? And then we're going to move to phase two, take off the Lamb robe and put on the kingly robe. And then look what Jesus does. He doesn't get out Reader's Digest. you know. He doesn't get out People magazine. Beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning him in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Wouldn't you like to have been there for that? Man, that's awesome. But he's using the scriptures. He's big on the scriptures. He acts like the scriptures are important, right? And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. For it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, breaking it, began to give it to them. Um, let's see. Yeah, where I want that. Yeah, keep going. Uh, then their eyes were opened. They recognized him. He vanished from their sight. And then they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the Scriptures? Okay, it's all about Scripture, man. Jesus is big on the scriptures. Um, And a big part of this is open to us by the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mentioned in passing a couple of weeks ago that before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest Hebrew copy of Isaiah we had was dated 1000 AD. Now, it's not as bad as it sounds because we had illusions from Jewish Jewish literature to a lot of the Old Testament And we had a translation called the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament done in about 250 B.C. We had pretty much earlier copies of that, so that was a translation. But the prize of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a copy of the entire book of Isaiah, which has all those incredible specific prophecies about Jesus, carbon dated 150 B.C. So you can't say, well, Christians changed the wording in 1000 A.D. because that's the earliest copy we've got, right? Uh, Verse 19... You know this stuff, like the Pharisees are doing by their picky rules and their cootie theory of spirituality and their salvation by merit. You're not going to make it. You're going to be least in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven, right? So that's what he's saying there. And this is all a lead up to what he says in verse 20. Here's the content, right, of Timu uh, Tehes, the content of the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said. Here it comes. For I say to you, and this is the first premise he makes in the Sermon on the Mount. I say to you, and that's plural, I say to all y'all, that unless your righteousness is better than the most righteous people who have ever lived in history based on religious rules and regulations and rituals, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that sounds odd to us, but it made perfect sense to the listeners because they knew the scribes and Pharisees were going to go to heaven because they were so religiously scrupulous and they followed the law to the letter, but that's all they did. didn't have the heart. Uh, the law was never designed to be something that we could use to climb up to God as a mirror to show you desperately need a Savior. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of how good you are, How comes the knowledge of sin, because everybody breaks the law. Nicodemus, woman at the well, you too. Uh, scribes and Pharisees were the most, and I'm going to go out on a limb, I think, and I don't have enough information to say this probably, but I think they were probably the most religiously righteous people in human history. They were certainly the most righteous religious people anybody in that culture could conceive of. Uh, and Jesus is saying you've got to have a different kind of righteousness than that. you got to have a perfect righteousness, one you cannot manufacture yourself because if anybody could, it would have been the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's look at... Um, the testimony, since he couldn't come in here in person today, let's look at Paul's testimony based on what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this is such an important passage. It's amazing how few people cite this when we're talking about soteriology. But Philippians chapter 3, this is uh, the testimony of a scribe slash Pharisee by the name of Saul who changed his uh, name to Paul after he came to faith. And he just lists, starting in verse 4, he says, If anybody wants to be saved based on what they can do in the flesh, it's got to be me. I'm better than any of you people. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh and what I can do to earn salvation by the merit system, which isn't the way it worked. I far more circumcised on the eighth day, exactly like is prescribed. The tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, the Hebrews, as the law, as a Pharisee, as the zeal, I persecuted the church, made sure some of them were killed. As to the righteousness which is in the law, based on the Pharisaical external cootie theory, I'm blameless. I'm the best person I knew. I did everything as best I possibly could. But whatever things were gained to me in my mind, my human merit, those things I've counted as loss. And that's a really rough word in the Greek, skubia. You can look it up later. It's really a rough, rough word. Almost a crude word, just telling how terrible. Thinking stacking up your good deeds up next to the cross is going to make brownie points for you with God. More than that, I count all things, anything I could stack up as giving me brownie points religiously to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom i suffered the loss of all that. His pension, his severance is all gone. He left Judaism and institutional Judaism of his own free will. And I count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And watch this. And here's the righteousness he has based on faith, not based on his merit. Based on God's grace, not based on his performance. And be found in him, that's his position now, in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, derived from me obeying the wooden precepts of the law, the way the Pharisees taught. But that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged on the cross. How many of your sins were future when Christ died on the cross on April 3rd, 33 AD? All of them. How many did he pay for? All of them. How many are forgiven when you trust him for salvation? All the ones he paid for, which is all of them. And then, but that would just get you to zero. You're in debt, now you're to zero, and then he imputes his righteousness to you. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I don't have a righteousness based on how good I was. I have a righteousness that has been given to me, not derived through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What Jesus is doing, go back to Matthew 5, in Sermon on the Mount, is saying, don't think you can earn this by being a good Jew or a good religious person. And when you analyze what it really means, you'll see you can't do this. You do not do this. Christians don't do this perfectly, much less unbelievers, right? Unless you've got a righteousness that surpasses the best human religious righteousness you can conceive of, you're not going to heaven. You can't go to heaven unless you're given the righteous standing you need as a gift based on the work and person of Jesus Christ. Now, we said that this statement here is the most unreligious thing anyone ever said, and I, I, I believe that. But a close second, a very, very close second, is Romans four five. I quote it all the time. If when uh, I walk into the into the darkness or the light and go away, I hope the one verse you remember. I was uh, pounding away with at all the time. Romans four five. I like John three sixteen too. I like. I technically I like them all. Just so you'll know, I like them all. <laughs> But Romans 4, 5, which is so seldom mentioned in all these books evangelicals write about the gospel, man, is crazy, because I think this is the second most unreligious thing anybody's ever said. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who doesn't work, it's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God does for you, man. Forget about doing it. What exactly did the terrorist on the cross do to earn salvation? And this guy had broken all Ten Commandments. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom? What does Jesus say? Man, I wish you'd talk to me last week. I mean, you gotta reform, man. You gotta change. He says, today you'll be with me. And this has gotta be all of grace, all of the merit of Christ for that to happen. But the one who does not work but believes, believing isn't a work. It's a rational act, but it's the empty hand that receives the merits of faith, Calvin said. In him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the person who justifies the ungodly? There's only one person. Let's say Jesus Christ, right Betty? That person's faith, who's that person? The ungodly person who believes. That person's faith is credited as righteousness. Our sins imputed to him and judged on the cross, his righteousness imputed to us as our standing. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a legal position. There's a difference between your position legally and your experiential walk. When I'm walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, I reveal who I am. I'm shiny. I'm salty. Uh, it, it lines up when I sin. Every time I sin, it only happens like twice a year. So I mean, you got to You got to look because you have miss it, right? Except when I say lies like that. I guess that's the third one. When I sin and I do, ask my wife. She will. She's got extensive documentation and pictures. Uh, but she's she's very gracious. Um, I'm not salty. I'm not shiny. I'm concealing who I am, right? Uh, when I do that, but. That's a position and that's a position you can't generate on your own, right? Boom, take this to heart. The most unreligious thing anyone's ever said was said by Malo Setoum. Uh, you know, uh Nietzsche, uh Richard Dawkins, right? Sam Harris, the new atheists. They're not saying anything new. They just kind of have vilified us to extreme. It was said by Jesus Christ and he said Being religious can't make you to heaven. No matter how good you are, you're not going to be good enough to go to heaven. This is so important. Human beings have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. We end up worshiping something or someone, lowercase, that we realize is fallible and temporal, or something, someone, that may be a figment of imagination, capital S, but it's transcendent. Uh, And yet, at the same time, human beings, HB is a human being, intuitively assume connecting with God, whether you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, uh, or however you want to define it, is based on what we do, based on our merit, our performance, our lower case, our righteousness. But our Lord Jesus, who says the most unreligious thing anyone's ever said, blows that out of the water at the get-go in this sermon. And he basically says, uh, contrary to human opinion, Salvation is not based on human merit expressed through rituals and religion. Salvation is not something uh, we must achieve. It's something that can be and must be received as based on the merits of Christ. You can, you know, all the religions say do, 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 do. Only one religion says done. You know, which religion says done? That'd be Christianity. Christianity is all about what Christ has done. And guess what? When you trust Christ as Savior through faith, the ungodly trust Christ, you don't just get a get-out-of-hell-free card. You get a whole new capacity to be spiritually bright and spiritually salty. But do we do it perfectly? If we confess our sins, he's faithfully given us. Yeah, we should still leak some oil. So that's, that's really important. So salvation is not something we achieve. It's something we must, what? Receive. It's not based on what we do for Christ. It's not, let's make a deal. I'll give you this, you give me eternal life. That'd be be pretty cool, but it's not the way it works. We got nothing but to the one who does not work, right? But believes. Believing is trusting in somebody else to do the work for you. Salvation is based on what Christ has done for us. I'll close with a, a great diagnostic question to ask people when you witness to them. Who gets the credit for your salvation? Uh, who or what are you trusting in to save you? Who does the work for your salvation? Let me suggest there are three basic approaches to this. Some people think, you know, salvation is the ultimate DIY, do-it-yourself project. The average American thinks that's what Christianity teaches. We come together on Sundays all over this town because we think we keep the rules better than Joe Sixpack does. And he kind of resents the fact we think we're better than he is. And maybe sometimes we've given that impression, but shame on us if that's what we've said. The reason that Ken Wanzer or Dale Corbin or Jeff Skinner go to heaven was because of the merits of Jesus Christ received by the empty hand of faith. That's the only reason anybody goes to heaven, then or now. But a lot of Americans think um, that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I've got a guy in my life that I see most six days a week when I go to the Simmons Center. Who He's kind of a com- combination of the woman at the well and Nicodemus. Because I mean, the woman at the well, Nicodemus. Uh, he lived a very immoral life, and he's told me about a lot of these things. More detail than I really want to know when I'm on this elliptical trainer. But he, he goes into great detail about what he was. Now he's so old and feeble, he really can't do most of those things anymore anyways. It's easier, I think, for him not to do them. But he's told me all about... he feels like I'm a clergyman. He's got to confess his sins to me, you know. So he told me all about his checkered life. But now, he's pretty sure he's going to make it because he's a pretty good old boy. And every time he makes that premise, I stop him and say, it's not trusting in your what you've done, it's trusting in Christ. I say, it every, Oh yeah, yeah, I know that, but... And so he's my... Uh, He's he's my current project right now. And he actually knows I'm a preacher and he keeps coming back, so I mean, he must be crazy. But many of the unbelievers in your life think that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's what Bob Shalit was committed to. He knew he had broken the commandments, but he thought he was a good old boy, pretty good Jewish old boy, and he was going to make it that way until God opened his eyes. So my merit alone is the way a lot of people go. That's part of the broad road Jesus warns you about at the end of the sermon. It's not about being a debaucher. It's about being a self-impressed, uh, prideful Pharisee. Uh, a lot of groups say, well, Christ did something necessary, but it's not enough. Um, one group says we're saved by grace after all we can do, which really isn't grace. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses basically say Jesus died on a stake, not a cross, but what he did allows us to have consciousness after death so we can earn salvation by keeping all the laws and the commandments of the Bible. That's their that's their gospel, which is really bad news because nobody can do that. Most liberal Christians, uh even the ones that just blatantly deny the atoning work of Christ, they don't believe in a substitutionary atonement, they'll say he died as a virtuous martyr. But to show us that if we will be willing to stand up to the man like he did and be a social reformer that stood up to the Roman and the corrupt Jewish authorities, and if we'll stand up against injustice like that and do the best we can God's going to let us go to heaven based on what we've done. But what he did is necessary. What he taught us is necessary. His death is necessary in that sense, but it's not enough. And that waters down the blood of Christ. It cannot work. It will not work. In Galatians, we're told, if righteousness comes by being good, then Christ died needlessly. If you could make enough brownie points to be saved on your own, why is God sending his son on a suicide mission like that? The reason that Christ died for the sins of the world is because that's the only way that could be paid for. The only way we could be made righteous is to have our sins forgiven and righteousness given to us as a gift. Uh, I like the old uh, worship song. that says, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Right? Uh, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and Jesus died for me. So... You know, as you witness to people, don't let them off the hook when they say, well, I appreciate you saying that, Brad, but I'm a pretty good old boy now, so I'm going to make it. That can't work, my friend. You know, take them to the cross. They don't know they're blaspheming the death of Christ there, but that's what they're doing, and you can't let them get by with that. Don't let them walk away from you thinking if they're good enough, they might make it to heaven, because uh, that's just uh, a dead end, Right. Don't let them tell you Jesus did something, but they got to do the rest because that's watering down the blood cross. That can't work either. Uh, Jesus built a bridge halfway from earth to heaven now we got to manufacture our own with our own good works, our own rituals. you kidding? Uh, faith in Christ alone. Uh, make sure that's what you lead people with, focusing on the person and work of Christ and calling them to receive him based on who and what He is. And, you know, you can be in a church for 30 years and never really trust Christ alone. Make sure you have trusted Christ alone for salvation. He is the Savior. We are the saves, right? That's the way it works. That's the only way it can work. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, it blows our minds that the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said was said by our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we have so many well-meaning, sincere, humanly virtuous persons who think all over this world and all over this nation and all over this city, who think they can earn salvation by being good people or uh, good citizens and a good husband and a a good worker or a good employer. And uh, wouldn't work for Nicodemus, can't work for anybody. And uh, I would pray if anybody here has been kind of the thinking Jesus kind of helps them to be a good person, and that's really why they're going to go to heaven, don't let them leave this place without trusting solely in the work of Jesus Christ alone for them, uh, daring to believe that he is fully sufficient because he paid our sin debt completely, die paid in full, it is finished on the cross, and rose again, so he's the one who can give life after death because he went through that, door and came out the other end and then as we witness to people and it it may not be as explicit as me and my friend at Simmons center it may be more subtle but help us not just to go through our little card that says read this read that read quote that verse let us just leave people with what are you trusting in to get you to heaven what 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 uh are you depending on uh, to save you if it has anything to do with christ as savior and so that's what uh Our Lord's saying here, help us to realize that's the essential core message of saving faith and help us to be ready and eager to share that with people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.